Hi, welcome to the Fast Life with Diabetes podcast. My name is Lucy Fisher. On this podcast, we'll discuss everything related to intermittent fasting and type 1 and type 2 diabetes. We'll share tips and tricks, and we'll reveal some of the challenges that we've all faced as we go through this journey. We'll also have some fascinating guests that will share their stories. Thanks so much for joining. It's going to be a great show. Also, before we get started, I just want to remind you that I am not a doctor. Before beginning an intermittent fasting protocol or making changes to your medication, I highly recommend that you speak to your doctor. Hi everyone, thanks for listening today. Today we have on Colleen Mitchell, and Colleen is one of the hosts of This Is Type 1, which is a podcast about everything related to type 1 diabetes. She's also a life coach, and she really enjoys helping people with diabetes. For her day job, she's an engineer, and she lives with her husband in Missoula, Montana. Colleen has had type 1 for the majority of her life. She was diagnosed when she was 2 years old, and she's had diabetes for 26 years. About 6 years ago, she decided to embark on a health journey, and the catalysts were seeing her weight on the scale at 225, and at that point, she also had a lot of roller coaster blood sugars. And to combat her weight gain and her messy blood sugars, she decided to adopt a low carb slash keto diet. And not too long after she changed up her diet, she found intermittent fasting. And over the course of the last six years or so, she's been able to lose and maintain a weight loss of 60 to 70 pounds. She's got a really great approach to managing her health and her A1Cs have been very good. She maintains in the mid fives and I'm really excited for you to hear her story. I think you're really gonna like it. Hi, Colleen. I'm so happy to speak to you today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, I really wanna get into everything, but before we do, maybe you can just give us a quick introduction. I know you have a podcast, you do some life coaching, you have so many awesome things going on. Just uh, give us a little bit of background. Yeah, so I'm Colleen Mitchell. I'm the host of This Is Type 1 podcast, along with my co-host, Jesse, who's currently in college. I've had type 1 diabetes for over 26 years. I'm a life coach for type 1 diabetics. I'm also an author, so I have an epic fantasy novel out right now called Mark of Stars. And I'm also an engineer, so I have a full-time job in the electrical industry, and I am having fun with everything that I'm doing. Wow, that's super cool. And what part of the country do you live in? I live in Missoula, Montana, so I'm up in the wild and I love it. Yeah, I was listening to your podcast and I heard you moved, when was it, like a year ago? Is that right? Yeah, we moved from Western Washington in April of 2021, so it's coming up on a year pretty quick. Yeah, I'm sure it's beautiful there. Oh, it's gorgeous. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm so jealous. All right. So yeah, you've had diabetes for 26 years. I'm up right up on 25 years here. So it's so we're around the same time. How old were you when you were diagnosed? I was two. Wow. Two yeah. Wow. So you, you really don't have any recollection of life prior to diabetes. Nope. Zero, zero memory before diabetes. This has been my normal forever. So I don't, I've never, I've never kind of had the problem where I miss the life I had before because I literally have no memory of it. Wow. And I think that's actually good in a way because I was diagnosed when I was 17 
And I still have a very good recollection of just waking up in the morning and just going for a run, being carefree, not eating lunch and not, don't care. Never had a thought in the world about blood sugar until obviously I was 17, but I actually think it's better to not have any experience with normal blood sugars prior to getting diabetes. It's, it's actually a bad thing. So what are you using now to manage your diabetes in terms of, I think you're on a pump, is that right? I, yes, I'm on the Tandem T-Slim X2 pump and I, it integrates with the Dexcom D6 sensor. And then I use Novolog insulin in terms of like food. I do low carb and intermittent fasting. Okay. Yeah, definitely want to get into that. So you've been on the, the tandem control IQ. What, where does your A1C typically land these days? Below 5.5%. Wow. Fantastic. That's my last a very one good was, my last one was 5.4 and funny story. The, the very first time, the very first A1C result after we started our podcast, my A1C was 5.0. And before that, it was like 5.9, 5.8. It was so interesting that coinciding with the start of our podcast, it just dropped. Wow. <laughs> so it's been 5.0, 5.1, 5 5.2. I've stayed below 5.5 for uh, about two over two years now. Yeah, I like your podcast because you, you talk about all things related to type one. Obviously, the name is this is type one. So you discuss all topics type one related. So I imagine that it really keeps you kind of focused on your diabetes as you're doing the podcast. Yeah, and I only found out about this research later, but apparently the more connected you are to the community, the better your A1C is. Oh, wow, I'm sure. And you and so your life coaching is also related to diabetes. It is. I focus on helping type one diabetics kind of get over the like the drag of type one and thinking it's, it's controlling their lives and they want to blame it for everything. And I teach them how to learn how to accept that type one diabetes as part of their life and start working with it instead of against it. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that a common theme on your podcast is burnout with diabetes, which is something that I think, especially as you get, you know, into the probably 20 years of having diabetes and probably even sooner than that, I really started feeling it after like the, the 20 year mark it was just like, Seriously, I just don't want to do this anymore. You know, you just really sort of hit that wall and you just had it. So um, I'm sure that's a really, it's a really good service that you provide for people because I know it's a real issue. And I enjoy those yeah. episodes on your podcast. Thank you. So, and also before we move into more intermittent fasting, so your, your co-host also has diabetes. How, how do you know her? I never really figured that, that out. Okay, so Jessie was my, I call her my camp daughter at Panther Camp, which was the, the diabetes camp that we both went to. I went to it for over, for almost, actually about 20 years. And she went to it for, well, significantly less time because she's not even 20 yet. I had her as a camper when she was, I think, nine and 10. And then I got her back as my counselor in training when she was 14 and 15. And then the year she was 16, I decided I wanted to start the podcast. And I wanted to have a co-host and she just made the perfect sense. So I asked her, Hey, do you want to do a podcast with me? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> so she's my camp daughter. She's been to camp with me forever. And I've known her for most of her diabetes life. Yeah. I really love the interplay between you guys because you come at it from a different perspective. Obviously, you know, you're an adult and she's, she's eight, 19 now, maybe 19. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just kind of fun to hear what she's going through. A lot of her story now reminds me of when I was her age, just getting diagnosed and trying to think through college and all this stuff. And then a lot of what you talk about is stuff I'm going through now. So I love mm -hmm. to hear the, the interplay between you guys. So it's a super cool podcast and I'm going to link it up in the show notes. So let's pivot over to intermittent fasting. I know for 
a pretty decent chunk of time you had some issues with maintaining your weight and maybe you can just talk about like how that went and then what the sort of the catalyst was to sort of get things under control for you. Yeah, so when I was growing up, it was always from the doctors, you can eat whatever you want, you can like, just bolus for it. My parents didn't know anything about how food really affects both weight and blood sugar, which is weird because, you know, with you'd think that after having a high carb meal, you check your number and you're sky high, but apparently none of us really made that connection. So I I tried to lose weight for a long time, starting kind of when my pediatric endocrinologist told me that I had weight problems. Like every time I stepped on that scale in the doctor's office, it kind of felt like I was livestock being weighed. It had that big, big, big scale in there. And it was always your weight's going up. You should probably try to lose weight, but nobody ever told me how. And while I was growing up at my diabetes camp, the dietitians and the registered, like the nurses, the, the nutritionists, they were all saying how diabetics had to have carbs in their diet or else they would die. And that maybe not, not was, that wasn't really the, the exact phrasing, but that was the message that I heard that I could not give up carbohydrates or I would just, you know, fall over, keel over and die. And I tried multiple different ways to lose weight. I, everything except low carb. And through college, I just kept gaining, I kept gaining. And finally, I reached what I call my personal level of disgust. And this was post-college. This was uh, during my first job where I was 225 pounds and I'm 5'8", so it was, it was not comfortable. It did not look good. I hated having pictures of myself taken. I did not have very many pictures of myself taken. So it's kind of hard to find a, a good comparison picture for that. But that was the point where I was like, okay, I have to stop listening to the people who think they know what they're talking about and start doing my own research. So up until that point, I had been kind of poking around the, the keto sub on Reddit and just look, I, I was seeing uh, different success stories from other type one diabetics. I'm like, other people are doing this. I can do this too. And so I, I did this whole pivot where I changed my diet overnight. I had keto, I had a keto, whole, like a whole keto meal um, day, the very first day after that, my highest weight. And my, my weight started instantly going down. My, and what was even cooler was my blood sugars started getting much flatter. And I have this really cool comparison graph between the six days before I started low carb and the six days after I started low carb. And there's these huge, huge roller coaster spikes on the first one. And it's just now it's so nice and flat on the second one. And that was just six days starting keto. I hadn't even found intermittent fasting yet. And so after that, I quickly started dropping weight. I plateaued maybe around, I want to say the, the uh, low 190s to, to 200s. So I, I lost a significant amount of weight those first few months. And then I um, ended up having to move in with my in-laws and my father-in-law is a fantastic cook. And so my weight went up again. But after that, I, I found I found intermittent fasting probably in 2018 or 2019. I can't remember the exact details. I know I wrote a blog post about it in 2019, so it must have been around then. And from there, it was a lot easier to both control my blood sugars and lose more weight because I was fitting it into a period of time instead of, you know, spreading it out throughout the whole day and then ending up being hungry all the time. Yeah, I, I definitely hear you on all these things. And I like the progression where you started, you change your diet first, and then you, you found intermittent fasting. That's probably the right way to, to go about it. Sometimes if you do two things at once, it's very difficult, but you sort of figured the one thing out first and then 
progress into the other one. Now I heard a story, and maybe this is a separate story, but how you had a really bad day one day where you were 400, then you were 40, and you, you were like on a really bad roller coaster. Was that around the time that you switched to keto or? That was, that was the day before I decided to switch. Can you, can you tell us that story? Cause I feel like as type ones, we all have a sort of similar story. Yeah. So uh, I can't remember the specific details around why I was having such such roller coaster, but the the gist is that I was up to like I went up to over four hundred. It has to be because that's where my CGM caps out is four hundred, and then I would correct for it, and it would go down to forty or below. So the bottom low um, bottom cap of the CGM, so it would go from high to low, high to low, high to low. It did that three times, and the last low cycle it was below forty for several hours, and I had to eat. 400 grams of carb to bring it out just to get it to to come out and be level and this was like the culmination of the sad the standard american diet where that's what our doctors tell us to do and i that was my moment of i I have to find something else i can't this is not sustainable i can't keep living like this this roller coaster sucks i need to get off of it that's that's a terrible story i think that that i mean that's definitely happened to me did you ever did you have to use glucagon or did it not get to that point no i i don't think i've had to use glucagon since the two seizures i had in 2002 i'm very low aware so i'm very hypo aware i can i can feel all of my lows and i'm always conscious for them the lowest i've ever been is 26 and that was in elementary school and my principal walked me to the office so i was still fully capable of you know functioning but i was 26. yeah i i think i had a level trigger of 28 one time when i was driving and i was like i should probably get off the road <laughs> yeah, that's not a good thing <laughs> wow yeah so that's pretty that's a pretty dramatic story and i can see why at that point you're like I'm done with this because we've all had that. And like to your point earlier about thinking about diabetes, burnout, that kind of thing will burn you out like nothing else. So I'm sure that you were just, you just had it and it was time for a change. So when you switched to keto, I mean, so you were reading some, some blog posts, things like that. Do you remember, I mean, was the keto that you started with the keto that you're, or the low carb that you're on today, or is it a little bit different? It's evolved over the years. I've figured out that I have some sensitivities to certain foods and I'm still figuring out sensitivities as I go along. So what I ate back in whatever, I think it was 20, 2016 when I, when I first found it and what I'm eating now, there like there's some similarities in terms of how many carbs I eat. I try to stay below 50 grams of carb a day minus the Smarties for low snacks because those are, you know, I don't, I don't really count those, but I, I tried a lot of different, uh, low carb keto recipes back then that I hadn't tried before. Uh, I was trying a lot of like sweet replacements. So artificial sweeteners, low carb in keto uh, fat bombs, a different kind of low carb keto pastries, just stuff that I was trying to replace what I had cut out from the standard American diet so that I had some element of I'm used to this or or this is helping me feel like I'm not being deprived. But as time went on, I've discovered that I can't really do artificial sweeteners that well. If I do fat bombs, I'm more likely to continue to stay plateauing or not even like, or maybe even gain back some weight. It's just this whole process of learning what works best for my body is a great learning experience for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it is. And I think that we all go through that. And I think intermittent fasting actually helps you sort of determine what 
you do and, and don't want. And now, in, in terms of your intermittent fasting, the last episode on your podcast that I heard about it, you have a, a really short window. Is that right? Or has that evolved as well? It's still pretty short. It's about 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, um, maybe 7 o'clock till noon or 1. And okay. I try to fit it into the smaller one just because I know that if I stretch it out, I'm more likely to eat later. It's kind of weird. Like if I if I eat towards noon or one, I'm more likely to give in to the urges to overeat past my window. And so if I just cut it short, <laughs> really short, then I I lose that urge, which is kind of an interesting thing about my brain. So you wake up and you break your fast. Oh, what time do you wake up at? I wake up at four in the morning. Oh my gosh. Well, that explains. So oh. yeah. So I wake up at four. I have coffee um, around probably five because it, it takes about an hour to get through the, the yoga and shower and getting dressed and stuff. So wake up at four, coffee at five. I may or may not have heavy cream in that coffee. It just depends on what I'm doing at that time. I haven't really considered heavy cream as a breaking of my protocol or breaking of the fast, but depends on, on your philosophy, I guess. So one could say I actually break my fast at five and go till um, 12, but yeah. Do you have, do you drink coffee at other points in the day after you're done eating or is it only in that morning time? It's only in the morning time. So I only do one pot of coffee a day and that gets me to 16 ounce uh, travel mugs. And then after I do the coffee, I have a whole bunch of different teas that I go through. Okay. All right. So you, so you have the coffee with the, the cream in it, which, you know, whatever works for you. I think I, over time you evolve and you sort of say, I can get away with that. It's not going to blow anything up for me. It's all right. You know? So you have the, the coffee with the cream and then you eat breakfast around seven thirty ish. And what do you, what do you break your fast with? Assuming you're not counting the co cream in the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nowadays it's uh chaffles. So I do chaffles with egg, mozzarella and uh, chia seed, and then some fiber supplement. Cause my doctor wants me to have more fiber in my diet. I'll have a protein. So I'm doing steak right now. And then I do uh, keto chow, so that's my meal replacement shake. I do that. I do one of those a day. I'm considering doing some experimentation, trying that for the only thing I eat all day, which we'll see how that works. Might be good for a, a trip that I have coming up where I won't really have much time to do food prep, but just having a shake on on, the, on hand would really help. Okay, um, wait, before you move on, what is keto chow? Because I haven't heard of it. Oh, keto chow is a, a very specific low carb meal replacement shake. So it's, and it's nutritionally complete. So it literally can take the place of all of your meals. And the, the guy who created it actually did a hundred days of just keto chow to document its effect on his body. And he was doing blood tests every week. It was pr really cool experiment, but it, yeah, it's very low carb. He has, they have tons of flavors. They have really, really good flavors too. It, it does not taste like any of that Atkins diet stuff. <laughs> this is the best tasting shakes I've ever had in my life. And you can just buy it on Amazon or what it, or? Yeah, they do have it on Amazon, but uh, mm -hmm. it's best to get it straight from their website. That's ketochow.xyz. And okay. they have like sample packs. They have, they have blender bottles. If you don't have a blender bottle, it's, it's a really cool, cool place to, to shop. And you, and that doesn't raise your blood sugar at all. Or I, I always think of shake and I'm just like, oh, here we go. Roller coaster, you know? It depends on your, on your body. So they've, they've switched from, I think, whey protein to casein protein because of the blood sugar responses. But I sometimes have to bolus for the protein, but not the carbs, but only sometimes it's kind of weird. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, your mileage may vary. You might not react to, to what's in it like I do, but I've also, I also react to artificial sweeteners. So that's weird. Okay. What are your favorite flavors? Uh, the chocolate peanut butter, which I probably can't have anymore because I might have a peanut sensitivity, which is kind of 
sad. They have raspberry cheesecake. They have chocolate toffee, caramel macchiato. What are some other ones? Chocolate mint. That's not even like half of the flavors they have, but those are, those are some of my favorites. Wow. I'm going to look into that. That sounds really good. I'm afraid though, because every time I reintroduce some sort of sweet, whether it's real or artificial, then it makes me want, it makes me want the real thing even more. I think I might have, you know, I definitely have issues with, with sugar and I really have to keep it out of my life. Otherwise I just tend to go crazy on it. (laughs) Even if it's, like I said, even if it's artificial, it's just, it's one of those triggers for me, but it sounds like for you, it's not. So you eat one of the those shakes and then is that it for the day or do you do anything beyond that that's usually kind of it i might have some moon cheese or other small kind of snack type thing but it's it's usually incorporated with the rest of the food and i kind of eat like it's kind of one meal a day because i eat it all kind of around the same time but the keto chow might take a while to get through just because of uh, the protein density and so i'll just have it next to me and, and sip it while i work and do you have to bolus for any of the things that you eat, or you pretty much just let your pump handle it? I bolus for, yeah, I bolus for the carbs that I have and sometimes for the protein. So okay. just depending on what my meal is for that day, I might put in like 20 carbs and then just let it do its thing. But I typically will have to bolus for the, the keto chow protein and for the chia seeds that I put in my chaffles. And given that you are so low carb, do you do you actually pre-bolus or you just put it in when you're ready to start eating it? I pre-bolus when I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, okay. it'll it'll start giving me the warning that I'm going high and I'm like, oh, I should probably bolus for that. Yeah, I've, I've noticed with myself, for whatever reason, if I'm doing something low carb, if I pre-bolus and I end up in trouble. So I've sort of been playing around with pre-bolusing times and hopefully I can get it right at some point. Obviously, with diabetes, nothing is ever easy, so... And it can change. (laughs) Might work for you one day and not the next. So who knows? So you're, you have, you have an early window. Obviously you wake up early. How did you end up at that particular window or was it always there? Or did you have it later at some point and then moved it? I probably experimented with different times early on and found that when I eat in the evenings or the afternoons, my blood sugar goes up overnight, regardless if I have carbs or not. So I know if I'm going out to dinner with family and friends, well, I'm not going to be doing intermittent fasting that day, but I also will have to bolus for the food, even if it doesn't have very many carbs in it. And I'll have to turn on a different basal profile on my pump to handle the overnight highs. Because even if I bolus for dinner, I'm still going to go high overnight. And that's just something I figured out over months, years of experimenting with it. Yeah, I started, I, I guess I started and I had like a more later afternoon, early evening window. And I think I'm the same as you. It's just like I was battling with those high blood sugars overnight. And I just thought, why don't I just try this earlier in the day? And I feel like probably for a majority of type ones, maybe an earlier eating window, assuming that you're doing something that's more condensed, like the two of us are doing. Mine is usually 10 to 12, 30 to one o'clock and yours is yours ends around the same time. And I feel like once you, if you can cut it off around one o'clock, then you have so much time before you go to bed that you can really get things under control. Mm -hmm. And so, so you said you do yoga in the mornings. Do you do any other exercise? If it's not below freezing, which currently is uh, right now. And by by below freezing, I mean in the like low teens negatives. (laughs) If it's 20 degrees, it's fine. I can go on a walk. But my husband and I will take a walk after my workday is over during the week. And then on Saturdays or Sundays, I go on hikes, even during the winter now, which is fun. So something I'm, I'm trying to figure out at the moment is how to, how to balance my eating window with a hike and the blood sugars after, because 
I've had um, experiences where I eat before and then during the hike, my number goes too high. But then I've also had experiences where I eat before my number goes low during the hike. I'm like, well, which one do you want to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you on that. And it's a, it's a constant challenge. I have something similar. I go to the to get acupuncture on Wednesday mornings and I'm always playing around with, cause and it's like at 10 AM, which is when my eating window should start. And I'm always there for like an hour and 45 minutes or something. So I'm like, do I eat before? Or do I try to push it through? Sometimes if I, if I eat before I go low, sometimes if I eat before I go high and it's just, and we have a bunch of needles in your back, there's not really much you can do about it. So, you know, it's, it's a constant struggle, but yeah. So during your hike, you know, sometimes you have mixed results on, on what's going to happen. And do you, do you think it has anything to do with what you've eaten the day before? Or do you think it's not even necessarily related to that? It could be, it couldn't be like 42 different factors affect blood sugar. So, so it Is could it be 42? any of the above. Mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I tried telling my partner that, you know, it, it could be any one of a million things. 42 is probably about the right number <laughs> that's causing yeah, that's, this issue. <laughs> that's what I try to remind people is especially type two diabetics. Cause I, I see a lot of people who are like, I ate the exact same thing that I ate yesterday, but my blood sugars are wildly different. I'm like, it's not just your food. It's your exercise, it's your sleep, it's your medications, it's your mood, it's your stress levels. It's all of these different things. And they could all send it high or low. It's not just what you eat. Yeah. Very, very true. Do you end up doing a similar hike each time or is it you, you guys mix it up? It's usually either one that ha is kind of steep or one that's flat. So there's not really any real middle ground. <laughs> it's steep or flat. And the flat ones are nice because then my blood sugar is pretty stable the whole way. I might have a single Smarty roll. But the the steep ones, it's that's the ones that's really a toss-up, whether I'll go high or go low. It just, it honestly just depends. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's because it's high intensity that I have mixed results with that too. So you eat Smarties when you, when you go low. I, I mean... For me, I think I make it through most weeks, maybe three or four days, I can make it through a full fast without having to break it with, with some low whatever. Is that kind of where you are? Or do you think it's more often or less often? I'm always curious to hear how people do. I usually have two to th two to five Smarties a day. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not something I've totally figured out with just my overall protocol, but there are some days where I have no Smarties. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> success. But there is also days where I have to have like 14 and I'm like, ah, oh, well that sucks, but try again tomorrow. And you're counting individual Smarties or the rolls? Oh no, um, I count by roll. So okay. um, usually I would have rolls, but the last time I ordered Smarties, they sent them to me in this bulk bag of like 10 pounds of loose Smarties. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so I ended up getting pill containers. And so I have pill containers with Smarties in them and I separated three of them by halves and then two of them by holes. So I get to, I, I get to keep track of how many Smarties I have and it's 15 Smarties per roll. Okay. <laughs> so I have to do all the counting and refilling. It's fun. Oh, I, yeah, I like that. I like to hear about people's low treats. I was doing gummy bears forever. And then another guest on the podcast told me that he goes, he, you know, he eats glucose tabs and I haven't eaten glucose tabs since I was like, you know, 17, but I recently went back to them, but Smarties and glucose tabs are basically the same thing. They're you just know, Smarties just taste better. They, yeah, they taste better and they're, they're actually in a more convenient package unless they send yes. you a huge bulk they... order of, of loose Smarties, yes. which isn't helpful. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And I've also noticed that sometimes I can treat a low with just half a roll, which is really nice. And I'll, I'll respond to the half a roll. Like if I'm like 81 or something and I have that half roll, I'll go up to like 95 and I'll stay there. 
but if I have a whole roll, it'd be like, you're going to 140. So there's a big difference for my blood sugars between the half roll and the whole roll. I just have to be aware of like insulin on board and what the trend is and how much I've eaten in the past hour or two, stuff like that. Yeah. So for me, like if I'm cruising at 70, I usually don't treat it. I try to just turn my pump down a little bit and just see where that goes. Do you do it that way? Or do you kind of say, you know what, I'm at 80 and I feel like I'm not going to do well. So I'm just going to take something. It'll depend on how I'm feeling. Sometimes I've ridden out the 70 and it'll come back up, but usually that's overnight. Mm -hmm. I try not to eat any Smarties overnight if I can help it, just because if I do, then I'll end up going really high. Plus I've noticed if I eat Smarties overnight, my mouth feels terrible in the morning. And it's even if I have a single, like a half roll, it'll, it'll suck. And so I try to avoid those. And I've gotten really good at having really smooth nights. So I rarely go low overnight anymore. And if my pump is alarming me that I'm low, it's probably because it's a compression low. And mm-hmm. then I can make, oh, I can recognize that as a compression low and then just write it out and go back to sleep. Yeah, I have those too sometimes. Those are those are annoying when you... I, I actually have my, my alarm set to a baby crying because for whatever reason, I won't wake up to any other noise. And I don't have children, but... For whatever, I don't know why that is, but I have this baby crying in the middle of the night and I'm like, okay, here we go. I have a low, but most of the time it's a compression low and not a real low, thankfully. I mean, I've noticed ever since I started intermittent fasting, it sounds like you're probably in a very similar boat. And especially since you're on control IQ, the overnight lows are pretty much a a thing of the past, like real lows. Oh yeah. The first time that I ever had basal IQ turned on before they came out with control IQ, I was like, this is freaking magic. It turned my insulin off. This is amazing. Yeah, it really is. And does control IQ, does that, does that have automatic bolus? It does, As, yes. Okay, all right, yeah. So I'm on I'm looping, so it's very similar. And I know Omnipod just came out with the Omnipod 5, which I think is basically going to be like basal IQ, if I understand correctly. But I, I'm amazed that all these pump manufacturers are kind of, you know, all... I know the FDA kind of, you know, can thwart their progress a little bit and slow them down, but... I'm so pleased with all the advancements that have been made recently. Me too. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been doing intermittent fasting since 2019. Is there any reason why you you think you'd ever go back to your old way of eating more than one meal a day? Or you think this is a lifetime situation for you? I think this is lifetime. The only exceptions are really going to be like holidays, dinners with family or friends. But it's, it's my lifestyle now. Whenever I try to to go back to the way it was before, my body just is like, hard no, we're not doing that. <laughs> go back to eating only once a day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And have you, so when you lost, you lost quite a bit of weight. When did, so you lost, did you lose most of it through keto or did you lose it? Was it a combination of keto and intermittent fasting or how, how would you say that was broken down? I would say the initial, the initial steep loss was all just low carb. And then Mm -hmm. once I paired the intermittent fasting, I was able to make it consistent for longer. So it also helps me with the plateaus. So if I go through, I've gone through like a year plus plateau and just staying on the intermittent fasting and then going through an elimination diet actually helped break that plateau and bring it back down again. I probably need to do another one of those soon just to break whatever plateau I'm on right now. But yeah, I've, I think it's been a really big help with my weight loss, with my overall mindset, with my blood sugars especially. I like telling people I started keto or I started low carb for my blood sugars and I stayed for the weight loss. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, so many people have so many different non-scale victories associated with intermittent fasting and 
low carb. And obviously you said, you know, you have more mental clarity, obviously blood sugars being better is a huge one. Are there any others that you've, you've noticed along the way? Probably more energy and I'm less likely to snap at either other people or myself when I'm upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big one for me too. I, yeah. And, and I notice like clearer skin and just, you know, things like that. Have, have your doctors been supportive of everything that you've been doing? I know they didn't initially suggest that they were suggesting a high carb diet for you. Yeah, my endocrinologist, she's like, I've, I tell her what I'm going to do and then she makes suggestions for how to improve it. So she's on board with my, my diet as long as my, my labs are good. And if my labs need work, then we'll add some stuff in and I'll make sure she knows that I still want it to be low carb. So when, like the last time we were talking about my fiber intake and like, okay, I don't want to be starting to eat a lot of fruit. I don't want to have anything, any legumes because those are just going to spike my blood sugar. And she's like, okay, here's the supplement. So I just used uh, the Just Better Fiber Powder Edition in my keto chow and I can't, like, I can't taste it. Mm. It just makes it, makes it so I have more fiber in my diet. So your doctors have been, I guess you had to switch doctors, right? When you moved to Missoula? I did not actually. I'm still telemedicine with my doctor from Washington. Oh, okay. That's good. So you didn't have to switch up your care. That's always stressful for me, finding a new endocrinologist. So that's, that's really helpful. And I'm glad that your endocrinologist has been supportive of everything you've been doing. Yeah, I've known her since I was six years old. So it's like she, she knows me very well. I know her pretty well. And I'm, I'm one of her most boring diabetics. So we never really talk about my blood sugars. We just talk about everything else. I'm always so curious, and one day I need to have an endocrinologist on to talk about this, but I'm so curious to hear what the, you know, the range of A1Cs is. Like, I wonder how many people are well-controlled versus not well-controlled, and I'm always so interested. I, I hope that there's a lot more people that are well-controlled, and hopefully your endocrinologist is using your story as sort of something to inspire others to maybe do low-carb or intermittent fasting. I've never had a, a doctor tell me about intermittent fasting, so maybe yours will, uh, you know, having seen your success. Who knows? I don't know about mine personally, but Dr. Ken Berry would definitely do that. And we had him as a guest on our podcast. True. Yes. Yes. So maybe you can tell me a little bit more about your podcast, some of the guests you've had on. I, I listened to a great episode that you had with Richard Vaughn. I was listening to it the other day. Oh my God. He's such a sweetheart. He I can't believe a, he, he was awesome. He's had it for 75 years. What are some of the, the favorite episodes that you've had? So our most popular episode with a guest is Dr. Ken Berry, and that was one of my absolute favorites to record. He is, he's so sweet. He's so nice. Just, I loved him immensely. I'm just looking through the list of ones we've had. We've uh, talked to Kira Richards, who is the founder of Myabetic. We've talked to several people who I went to diabetes camp with. We've talked to... Let's see, Gen Dr. Jennifer McVean, she is the medical affairs director at Medtronic. So she was on the podcast earlier this year. We've talked to uh, Lauren Bongiorno from Risley Health. We've done, oh, what else have we done? We've had my doctor on. <laughs> my oh, I, I need Becky. to listen to that episode. Okay, yeah. That's uh, with Becky Blodgett. That's episode 61. She came on to talk about cortisol and functional medicine. Okay. And then something I'm really excited about, I'm not sure when this episode is going to go, is going to air, but next week, which is the week of February 28th, March 1st, we are going to be releasing a bonus episode with Nick Averback-Katz, who is an actor on Star Trek Discovery, and he recently just launched his Kickstarter for a dystopian short film called Type 1. 
and he met the Kickstarter goal in a single day. So right now they just blew past their first stretch goal. And we're going to talk to him next week and release a bonus episode on that. Oh, how great. How amazing. Oh, I love that, that it's, you know, I love all the attention and all the community around type one. Now it's, it feels very different from when I was newly diagnosed, when you were growing up, you probably didn't know very many other diabetics aside from the diabetics you met at diabetes camp. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually thought having diabetic friends was normal because I grew up with my diabetes camp friends. I am like one of the girls that I met at camp when we were both, um, six, she's my, she's one of my best friends. So I still talk to her regularly. So when I started the podcast and we started talking to guests and so many of them were telling us that they had never met a single other diabetic kid when they were growing up, even as an adult, maybe they had never spoken in person, like on zoom to another type one diabetic. So I always felt a sense of community with my diabetic friends and my peers because I had that camp atmosphere growing up. So to me, it's completely normal to have type one friends, whereas a lot of people in the type one community don't have that kind of relationship because they didn't grow up with, with camp. Yeah. When I was 17, I mean, I guess I had, I mean, maybe I could have gone to a diabetes camp or maybe I still can. I don't even know, but I, I never, I guess I never looked into it. Nobody really talked to me about it. So I, up until very recently, I have not had any friends that have type one. So yeah, it's very lonely and it's yeah, better to do it your be. way when, <laughs> when you have friends that have diabetes. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very, I, I it's very isolating. Yeah. Yeah. I encourage people to reach out if they ever want to connect with another type one. I mean, Jesse and I are open Our our DMS are open for you. Yeah. And I think a lot of, and you know, even though I don't have, I only have one diabetic friend, even though I only just have the one having this podcast and meeting other diabetics and listening to other podcasts kind of makes me feel like I have diabetic friends or at least people that understand what I'm going through. So it's, mm. It's a synthetic friendship, I guess you could say. Um, and, you know, especially at this point, in, and I don't, you know, you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but in, in my life, I've started experiencing complications since I've had it so long. And it's been, especially since I would say the last four or five years, I've been managed much better because I've been on Dexcom and pumping and it's the technology has been able to, to really assist in, in managing this, this issue. But before that, you know, I was on finger sticks four times a day, maybe 10 times a day if I had enough strips and I could afford them or whatever. And so even though my A1C was in a decent range, maybe in the sevens, it might've been a function of a lot of low blood sugars kicking in and a lot of high blood sugars and just the average being at a somewhat decent range, but not necessarily floating at an average decent range. So, you know, I've had a lot of complications starting to kick in and I mean, I don't know if, have you had, had any complications at this point since you were about the same in terms of time with diabetes? So the, the most that I've really noticed is my eye doctor pointing out different, I don't know if they're called like micro hemorrhages or whatever in I have those too. Yep. But they go away. Like they go, they, they, they come and they go. The other probably, I wouldn't really call it a complication, but more of just a symptom of having it for so long is my hands and my feet are always cold. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Which my husband is not a fan of. <laughs> yes. I actually think I might, I'm, I'm seeing my endo Friday. And I'm going to ask her about maybe testing me for hypothyroidism because I think that's also a symptom of that. Have you ever been tested for that? I don't know if I've been tested with a blood test, but I do know that when I was growing up, my pediatric endo would always do like the little thyroid check underneath my chin. And my doctor is probably looking for it in my labs now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's obviously better to be tightly controlled and 
I think the, the chief way you can become tightly controlled is through diet, which you've done. And I also think another great way is through intermittent fasting, taking, because of the 42 variables, probably food is the number one that will <laughs> have oh, yeah. an impact on your blood sugar. Yeah. Food and stress, I would say are the two big ones. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed sight issues with my pod is another one that's been kind of coming up somewhat uh, frequently. Scar tissue. Oh, do you have that? Okay. I, I didn't well, put two and two together. Maybe that's what it is. Well, if you put if you keep, if you keep putting a, a site or a sensor on the same place without rotating enough, you're gonna build up scar tissue. I have a friend from camp who would always just slap on a new site where his old site was, and then mm-hmm. he would be surprised when it didn't work. <laughs> like, dude, scar tissue, move it. <laughs> I I used to notice that when I did injections, I would have like you know a lot of I, I thought. I don't know. At the time, I thought it was just fat. I was like, I'm having all this fat build up in this one spot, but it was obviously scar tissue that's gone away. But maybe you're right. I do rotate them, but my sights, but probably not enough. So that's actually a good thing to think about. <laughs> yeah, I, I recently introduced my thighs to my infusion site. So I do butt, butt, thigh, thigh, butt, butt, thigh, thigh. And I just kind of move it in a, I wouldn't really say a circle, but I just change the spot on each location each time so that I'm not putting it in the exact same spot. And my sensors, which are 10-day wear, I do forearm, forearm, bicep, bicep. And then just, so each day, each one gets about a month to heal between, between sites. Okay. Can you talk about the forearm? I noticed that you had that on your forearm and one of your pictures. I'm terrified to put a Dexcom on my forearm. Does it hurt? Only if you tense. So it'll, it'll sting if you tense, like if you clench your, your fist when you're doing it. I was I was just like you when I first did it about a year ago now. I was so terrified of what it would do, but I just I knew I needed to start rotating my sights. So it goes what I do is I have it and I'm I don't know if you're gonna post a video of this, but I have it on my forearm. I just put it right kind You're of in basically the in the middle, okay. Mm-hmm. Basically in the middle. Sometimes I'll angle it to one side. I don't try I don't wanna go to the thumb side. I don't I don't really know why I don't wanna go to the thumb side. Maybe I'm just worried it'll hurt more. But if I go towards the pinky side, it, it doesn't hurt as much sometimes. And I have to relax my hand completely. I lay it flat on a desk when I do it. So I relax my hand completely and I do deep breathing. So then I'll, I'll release the Dexcom injector on the down breath. So once I release, get to the bottom of the exhale, then I'll press the injector. And I just kind of let it sit there after I take it off. So when I, so when it's, if, cause if I move my hand at all right away, it'll start stinging. I just have to, I've figured out how to do it so that it, it, it's the least amount of pain. But once that initial sting goes away and I put the, the, the transmitter on and my Griff Grips, just the patch to keep it down, it's one of my favorite sites. And it's accurate? Oh yeah, it's really accurate. And sometimes I'll, I'll get a bleeder and the bleeder makes it more accurate. Yeah, I was going to say, because I, I think I tried it, I tried it with my Omnipod because I noticed a girl had an Omnipod on her, on her forearm. And that was a disaster. That was super painful. And I was like, I'm never doing this again. But then I saw you with the Dexcom. I was like, well, maybe I should retry that. Because I, I would like to get some more sites going. Okay, so I, I'll, I'll try that. That's, <laughs> I'm a little scared, but I'm going to try it. Do you, do you pinch it when you, do you have somebody else pinch it for you when you're going to oh. inject it? No, you just nope. slap it right on and push the button. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, that's okay. what I do. Uh, for the forearms, at least, for the for the bicep, I have to use the back of my chair to prop it up yeah, and then put it on. Cause yeah, I've, always, I've always, I've um, always been the only person to put my sensors on. I've never really had help. So when I first got it, I was alone. I'm like, well, how do I put this on? 
YouTube it. <laughs> yeah. It on the arm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, cool. I'm going to try it. And I'm I... excited for you. <laughs> I'm scared for me, but I'm going to try it anyway. Okay, cool. So just before we, you know, come up on time here, maybe you can just tell, just looping back to intermittent fasting and, and your diet. I know as just anyone, whether you're type one or type two, when you think about starting a new diet or you think about inter starting intermittent fasting, it's, it can be overwhelming. Is there anything that you would tell someone that's, you know, maybe telling Jesse, uh, you know, I don't think she, she doesn't intermittent fast, right? Your no, co-host? Yeah. If she was interested in, in starting, what would you tell her as a way to get started or anything that you, any tips that you've learned along the way? If you're getting overwhelmed with information, pick one source and stick to that. Cause you'll get conflicting information from all different people. So if you pick one source, stick to that and then try one thing at a time, that's probably going to be your best bet. If, as long as you're just willing to experiment. So running experiments is something that I like, I love telling people to do because you're the only person who can figure out what works best for your body. And you won't figure out if intermittent fasting works or not if you don't run experiments on it. Right. Right. And so in terms of the sources that you like the most, were there, is there a book that you like, or I know you were looking at Reddit posts and things like that. Is there a specific source that you prefer? Oh, I haven't looked at a, a lot. Like I haven't looked in a while. Because you're so probably, deep in, yeah. <laughs> I know. I would I would start with Dr. Ken Berry on YouTube and probably the Reddit Keto Sub if you wanted to go low carb. Those would be the two top resources I would I would uh, stick with. Okay, very good, very good. And we'll link to your podcast and you have a website as well. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean the the website is the podcast. The podcast is the website. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and I loved hearing your story and I, I love listening to your podcast. It feels like I already know you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest, please email me at fastlifewithdiabetes at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.